did you find me? Your record. Hmm? It took me a while, but I traced you. Did you like it? Not much. Who'd you make it for, then? For my wife. She'll get to hear it one day. On the radio. We hear most everything on the radio these days. two years, we've had uh, comments like, darling, and uh, can I carry your handbag thrown at us? I think it's just had to stop now. It's all got to stop. But Vince Taylor was this nightmare of a guy. I met him in uh, Giaconda one day, and the guy was right out of his tree. I mean, he was playing with Arthur Deck. I mean, this guy was... Bonkers, absolutely the genuine article. And then he, and that one day I remember on Tottenham Court Road, he dragged out this world map and we were crouching on all fours outside Tottenham Court Road tube station. And uh, he was showing me where all the aliens had their bases throughout the, under the Arctic and like in this mountain. <laughs> and there's people stepping over our map and I think, what the hell am I doing in the middle of Russia? with this bonkers American looking at the map of the world and he's telling me, and I thought, there's something in this, I'm going to remember this. <laughs> this is just too good. Uh, what are your intentions when this craze is over? Uh, my own personal intentions is to keep on singing rock and roll because most singers, when they become uh, a top-name rock and roll artist, they try to change immediately to be a big all-around entertainer, which I don't think is a good thing. Then I heard that uh, in France, he went over to France and became quite a big hit over there as, their, as one of their competitors to Johnny Alliday, you know? And uh, that one night he'd gone on stage without his band but dressed in white robes and told everybody that indeed he was the coming messiah. My office approached Mrs. Orwell because I said, Office, I want to do 1984 as a musical. Go and get me the rights. <laughs> so they duly trooped off to see Mrs. Orwell, who in so many words said, you've got to be out of your gourd. You think I'm turning this over to that? You know, if it was like Fagin's gang that had gone absolutely apeshit and they were living on the tops of uh, buildings. And I got that from my father's work at Dr. Bernardo's homes because Dr. Bernardo and Lord Shaftesbury had once gone on the top of the roofs of the city of London and found all these urchins living up there. And that always stayed in my mind as being an extraordinary image of all these kids living up on the roofs of London, you know. And so I had the Diamond Dogs were living on the roofs of London, you know, and they were like, they were all little Johnny Rottens and Sid Viciouses, really. And in the death, as the last few corpses lay rotting on the slimy thoroughfare, the shutters lifted an inch in Temperance Building high on Boacher's Hill, and red mutant eyes gazed down on Hunger City. No more big wheels. Fleas the size of rats sucked on rats the size of cats, and 10,000 peploids split into small tribes, 
carpets in the highest of the sterile skyscrapers like packs of dogs assaulting the glass fronts of Lovney Avenue, ripping and re-wrapping mink and shiny silver fronts, now leghorns, family badge of sapphire and cracked emerald, the gear of the diamond dogs. sleepy eyes how happy I'd be gonna see my baby again gonna be with some of my friends maybe I'll feel better again on blue bayou yeah. the planet earth is blue but there's something we can do some are born to endless night some are born to pure delight and since this is a reimagining a reboot of our musical films about David Bowie's the man who fell to earth which is also a kind of psychogeographical exploration of London London not only the streets and the buildings and the ecology the trees and the pigeons but also London in the imagination London in literature there is no better place to be and there is no better person to share this time with than Lambda award-winning author poet activist cultural critic and living saint Ros Caveney gosh people often leave off the living saint part you must be pissed yes. off about that well this is true I'm I was sac sanctified by the sisters of perpetual indulgence and people sometimes forget this I didn't know that <laughs> yeah no no I was I was canonized of as little St Ros of the moderately expensive flowers some years ago <laughs> Well, I shall, heretofore, I shall only address you by that title. And, uh, and I even worked Miracle, which was that, um, there was a point around that time when Cathy Brennan was sl slagging me off and Julie Bindle oh, here we go. Felt, <laughs> um, felt obliged to speak up on my behalf. Well, because Kathy Brennan went into a rant about me 
intruding on the lesbian strength march and even Julie Bindle said well fair dues they did invite her to speak which was I counted a miracle oh I mean a clear evidence of your um, saintliness. saintliness or certainly imminent canonization but also um, a, a hot button issue of our times uh, yeah. radical feminists trans exclusionary feminists yeah. that's something that we're all fussed about and is oh, all over oh. social media but we're having this conversation in a very peaceful yeah. churchyard I mean so we're opposite the the tomb of John Bunyan near us is where William Blake is buried this graveyard is quintessentially in and of London it's a beautiful quiet solemn space full of gravestones and it's the spring and bluebells are um, arising through the soil just after Easter mm. I mean all the all the, the symbolism the the sempiternal aspects of London changing yet changeless as canal water we're in and of it Ros yes well it's it's a place where they've let gr you know grass perpetually grows between the cobblestones and over the grave over the graves where lichen and, and moss have eroded most of the names of the people who lie here uh, even periodically having a go at the graves of the famous here and you know it makes one think about how irrelevant most things are I mean these are people who in their quiet way resisted unjust power who were by no means necessarily good or nice people I mean I can't honestly think I would have had much to say to Bunyan had I met him um, he does seem like a rather rum character it must be said um, but he tried to speak truth to power and spent much time in jail as a result for, for people who don't know who John Bunyan is which of course nowadays a lot of people don't no he's one of the most important writers in the English language yeah because he was for many several centuries one of the most widely widely read authors in the English language because because his work was regarded as as not secular yeah um, people who were worried about prose fiction nonetheless read the Pilgrim's Progress read the Holy War because it was devotional and yet of course it has many uh, many of the plus points of um, rather more vulgar prose fiction I mean it's full of sensational bits like the fight with the demon Apollyon um, now you're talking Yes, I mean, it's an interesting point that there are, he's one of the people who, I don't, I think he's one of the people who is in the top 10 of writers who contributed to the common stock of uh, language 
I mean, way after Shakespeare. But on the other hand, I mean, pra fr phrases like the cliche phrases like the flower of despond, that's Bunyan. Wow. It's not. It's not the James Bible. Um, and the trumpet sounded for him on the other side. Bunyan. Um, but in an age that's less concerned with the heritage of print, I, d I think I'm right in saying that no one, not even religious people, has ever tried to film him. It's a very good point. I mean, much like John Donne, I mean, there aren't, there isn't a John Donne franchise. No. Um, I mean, obviously, Vaughan Williams wrote a huge festival opera based on Pilgrim's Progress. Some um, of which you can hear as the music bed now, which I will edit in later on. Yeah. Um, and indeed, um, I think it's quote, he quotes from it in the Fifth Symphony, but certainly it's roughly contemporary with the Fifth Symphony. Um, it's... It helped create a particular sort of fairly plain, but nonetheless emotionally rich demotic prose. Um, but though Bunyan was a nonconformist, he became part of the broader Anglican tradition. I mean, the Anglican Church, much as he despised it, um, co-opted co -opted his work latterly. Um, I suppose people who've never read it don't even know what the Pilgrim's Progress is about. Yeah, it's, a, it's basically somebody trying to sort of find their way to heaven, really. It's yeah. rather like um, a matter of life and death, or... Yeah, it's a posthumous fantasy. It's a journey through various sorts of spiritual temptation and spiritual confrontation, concretized through as metaphor. And then there's a second half in which his wife and a party of others follow him and meet some of the same adversaries and some of the others. Um, oh, tell you another quotation, Vanity Fair. I mean, Vanity Fair is a place that people travel through in the Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think the phrase existed before Bunyan. Good Lord. We're in this space which resonates with all these quotable bits and also quotable bits that become unmoored and untethered from the original text and just kind of drift into common usage. As memes. As memes. And we're near where William Blake is buried and where Daniel Defoe is buried. It's now almost six years since we made our David Bowie show when David Bowie had, had just passed away in Stockwell in South London. We're now in North London near Old Street. And <laughs> the reason we've ended up in this it could not be more appropriate for what's now this sort of retake of the first show, this update, is we just, we missed each other. We were trying to meet each other and we, we, met, we Ros and I both managed to miss each other on Old Street. I've not seen Ros for two years no. because of the pandemic. We got lost basically and then I remembered that we were near 
where Bunyan and Blake and Defoe are buried. And Ross and I, although we've been friends for... I've never been here together before. We've never been here. Have you never been here? Oh, I've, I, I've sat here and, and sort of thought about life, the universe and everything many a time. But yeah, the, number of, we, the number of times we must have walked past this place hmm. and not just thought of doing this. And it's a lovely space to contemplate both Bowie's legacy and all that music that's in The Man Who Fell to Earth or could have been in it. But also, I think more where films and music and Bowie and all these people and bits of art that are precious to us now sit after a terrible pandemic. I mean, fortunately, Ross... Well, during a terrible yeah. pandemic. I mean, it is not over. Um, it's easier to test for it. There are vaccines against it. There are antivirals against it. But people are still dying from it all over the world. There Especially in places where vaccination hasn't yet penetrated. What's really terrifying is the number of people, even in the prosperous north, who won't be vaccinated, who won't take medicine, won't take elementary precautions like wearing masks in confined spaces. One of the terrifying things is that some Christians are arrogant and foolish enough to regard not taking elementary precautions for themselves and other people as an act of virtue. And I think we know what Bunyan and Blake and Defoe would all have thought of that one. I mean, the sight of people on a plane when a judge issued a temporary judgment against the mask mandate in confined spaces, taking off their masks and cheering uh, in the name of Jesus is, I mean, and I speak as an agnostic, utterly beyond blasphemy. And Bunyan and Blake and Defoe would all have recognised that because they spoke truth to power and truth to idiocy. We, we played in with this kind of soundscape, this montage that I made of Bowie talking about Vince Taylor, uh, who inspired him to do Ziggy Stardust, and this sort of bonkers conversation he had outside La Gioconda in, uh, top, near Tottenham Court Road, not that far from here, but also explaining where he got the idea for the Diamond Dogs that his dad, when he worked for Dr Bernardo's, knew this story about all the orphans living on the roofs of London and uh, he imagined them as all these kind of little sex pistols, little Johnny Rottens and Sid Vicious's. And then that sequence from Diamond Dogs is Bowie kind of doing his uh, John Wyndham or his, you know, his pulp science fiction novel about this apocalyptic future where we've only got five years and everyone's dying. Todd Browning Freaks. And actually, that's now all kind of happened, but... Bowie doesn't have a grave or a tomb. Bowie chose to be cremated and dispersed to the air. So 
what we've got to kind of place him in the broader scheme of things, rather than a tomb like we've got with John Bunyan, is these memes. Hmm. Um, no, I was I was thinking earlier on that if, as I fear, we are in an apocalyptic war for humane values. Heroes is one of our theme tunes. Very definitely. You know, that... Um, because it's about living just for one day, which is all we can hope for, is that in the face of potentially overwhelming power of various kinds, corruption, money, hatred, um, all we can do is live our own, live the lives we think of as valid. Um, and there's a triumph in that, there's a heroism in just keeping on. And as I, as I said earlier, speaking one's own truth to power, as has been the case for the last five years. <laughs> well, I mean, Bowie talked about five years and those five years are now up because it's over five years since he died. And these are apocalyptic times. It's funny making these things over years now and recording conversations that you and I as friends would have on the phone and these sorts of reflections and then sharing it with our lovely listeners on the internet. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this, as we said at the start, this podcast, we're not selling you mattresses or, or TV dinners or anything. We haven't got a Patreon. I'm just doing this because I like talking to you, Ros. Yes. I like our listeners sharing these conversations because I get a lot from it. And how wonderful. I mean, so here's a, here's a positive note. How wonderful to live in a time where you and I can accidentally wander along Old Street and remember that William Blake and Defoe and Bunyan are here and we could nip in and pay them a visit. But now we can document it and when I get home later I can edit it and put some music on it, make a show, people can hear it. I mean there's a wonderful intimacy but also kind of timelessness about it. And there are flowers and the flowers are innocent and the squirrels and the pigeons that we can see are innocent and the grass between the cobblestones is innocent and something will persist um, under the under the pavement the beach as someone once said Um, I also thought when during the pandemic I thought about Space Odyssey here I am sitting in a tin can yeah we've kind of all been that and also again just to be somewhat positive the vaccine program how about those vaccines yeah. it's like the human race has been into space but we don't we haven't been grasped for that excitement that Bowie was caught up in when he wrote Space Odyssey of we're going to space our, our species is going to leave the planet We've done something 
just as extraordinary by curing ourselves or at least having the potential to cure ourselves but it hasn't really been there hasn't been quite the same sort of quickening of people's blood about it I don't I don't think I only vaguely remember the space race because I was very little well the, the thing is it was part of the trouble is that the the speed with which a number of useful vaccines were arrived at is quite incredible a, you know completely novel disease the implications of which we're still not fully aware of and yet something which has at least reduced its devastating effect I mean when we first read about it it sounded like the big one yeah in a moment We'll listen to our lovely conversation we had with uh, Jane and Andy Oppenheimer, who's had two books out since yes, we uh, talked to him. Two. And uh, and then, and this will surprise you, Ros, I recorded a conversation with uh, your good friend and mine, Mr. Jeffrey Ryman, of course, about the man who fell to earth. I recorded that two years ago, and then I haven't actually been able to make it into this show because I couldn't come back to London and do these extra bits. So. There's lots of treats in store, stay listening, but I think we're now going to, um, it's getting a bit chilly. Should we nip in and find some? Well, let's, let's walk over to and say hello to Mr. Blake. Okay, let's do that. We're here, paying respect to William Blake and his wife, Catherine Sophia, but we're also joined by a squirrel. Hello, Mr. Squirrel. Hello, Mr. Squirrel. And here's Mr. Defoe as well. What is the significance of this space and where do you think I'm going to sort of stretch uh, the olive branch of this metaphor to burning point? Where do you think Bowie fits in this well, continuum of words and poetry and culture? Who's this one? Is this anyone? So there's this third grave. Directly adjacent to Blake and Memory of Re Reverend Joseph Swain of Woolworth, April 14th, 1796, age 35. Good lord. It's odd. The simpler. I, I don't like all of Blake. I like the simple things. I like the songs of innocence and experience rather, rather more than the prophetic books. Um, which I don't claim to understand. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? That's real skin on the back of the neck quivering stuff. I mean, I think the point about Blake is that so much of his best work derives from the hymnal tradition. You know, that, I mean, of course, one of his most famous poems is one that's effectively become a, a quasi-secular hymn. 
um, I mean, some would say a quasi, a, a radical quasi-national anthem. Which is Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem. Um, and it's because of the simplicity of his diction. I mean, he's a poet from all we from whom we can all learn. I hope that at my best I've often been that simple. Um, I mean, that's what's great about Bowie as a yeah. lyricist. And it's interesting to have a movie where he's reading some someone else's words in the dialogue. Yeah. And then he's, what he's kind of bringing to it is his, uh, his uh, intuition as a performer of characters. So his own lyrics, to reduce something very complicated to something quite simple and probably quite banal, uh, he was good at taking quite left-field avant-garde ideas and making them into pop records that people could hum on the bus mm. or doing the washing up. Uh, so there's that kind of immediacy of his of his prose, yeah. which which is a bit comparable to Blake. But then with Defoe, it's the characters. I mean, Defoe is often attributed with having written the general history of the pirates, which is the nautical version of the Newgate Calendar, which is this. A collection of uh, sheets that were sold when highwaymen and robbers and criminals were hanged in London, often at, at the um, the Tyburn Hanging Tree at what's now Marble Arch, or at the docks. At the docks, partic particularly when the, the Admiralty would uh, would hang pirates at Necker's Wharf yeah. and at Limehouse, because the bit between. Uh, high tide and low tide was Admiralty land so there's a there's a kind of print the legend thing isn't there about Defoe with with that history of the pirates the the similar thing where it's just a kind of collection of all the stories about Captain Morgan and Calico uh, Jack and all those people um, it's interesting they've all suddenly become culture heroes again yes um, because of black sails because of Pirates of the Caribbean because of our flag means death, which is the jokey one. But Bowie's certainly got that thing of like a lot of the characters he he plays have got this kind of piratical swagger yeah. about them, uh, and that's to do with performance and also kind of a mod thing. It, um, that um, Mark Bolan, when Bowie and Mark Bolan were hanging around at the Giaconda uh, near Tottenham Court Road, Mark Bolan. Uh, pointed out to him that you could go to the King's Road after the shop shut around this time actually Friday evening uh, and you could go through the bins and find um, you know like a mod shirt or a nice two button um, uh, jacket or something and the button might have come off or there might be some dodgy stitching on it and you could put together quite a good wardrobe for nothing just by raiding the bins yeah and if you, you know, if you're only going to have one suit, uh, you might as well have a really nice suit. It was that thing of being from working class origins, or in Bowie's case, uh, kind of lower middle class, really, because yeah. his dad had a professional job. But 
there's always that thing where people made fun of Bowie for, t for affecting a, a, a working class accent and it always winds me up because he was from Brixton yeah that was genuinely his voice well the point is it's about swagger yeah I mean that's one of the ways in which working class culture has always succeeded in making impression is just by swagger you know the dandy highwaymen you know the mods had swagger the pirates had swagger calico jack had swagger edward teach had swagger um because it's how you win it's it's how people put up a good show on the on 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 the gallows um i mean sometimes through defiance and sometimes through Extra, extravagant repentance, which is still swagger, and, I mean, and that goes back to Vion. Um and the Ballade des Pondus. Another thing, uh, now we can sort of update our shows uh, over the months and years, uh, that is worth mentioning on the the uh, topic of swagger. Is of course that you now are in a feature film, Ros Caveney. I am indeed. Which is currently touring the country, and we urge our listeners to seek out and watch, which is the fantastic Rebel Dykes documentary. Rebel Dykes of the 80s. Do you care to explain that to us? Which and your is role in basically it? about one of the subcultures of the 1980s um, young, post punk, often part of the kink community. Uh, usually wearing leather, often riding bikes. As Ross is now, listener. Uh, I never gave up wearing my black leather jacket, though this one's plastic, but, um, you know, that it was a way of turning hard-wearing, durable clothing into a, into a statement. You know, it's a very, and because uh, various elements in the community tried to ban black leather jackets as uh, I, you know that very prophetic use of the word Nazi to mean something we don't like that has nothing whatever to do with Nazis except we say it does um, Vladimir Putin was paying attention um, it was very much a matter of well we wear black leather jackets because we like them and uh, it was very much about we will have wild sexual orgies because we like them um, I should be writing a novel about that period shortly uh, look somebody's got to be having wild sexual lesbian leather orgies well, I mean, someone's got to do it. I don't want to. It's a way of having resistance. It's it's a form of resistance to the power, which 
William Blake would probably have understood and John Bunyan certainly would not have done. <laughs> Let's go and get, get somewhere warm. David Bowie, the prettiest star, with Mark Bolan on guitar. That was his song uh, that he wrote about Hermione Farthingworth, who he was in feathers with his brief folk rock oh, um, yes. outfit. And she was a ballerina and she went and made a film mm. and she left him. So he wrote that song uh, in the hopes that she'd realise what she was missing out on and come back to him. She never did, though. Well. And um, after that, he met Angie Bowie. So there you are. That was my conversation with Roz at Barnhill Gardens by uh, the graves of Blake and Defoe and John Bunyan. And we're by the Bowie Memorial, which is kind of another memorial to a, a great poet and luminary in London culture, in the culture of the English language. Now, in the show we did in 2016, uh, in the immediate kind of grieving period after David Bowie had died in 2016 we recorded an entire show in the studio with Roz and with the very talented and very wonderful uh, Gabriella Balfe where we talk about Bowie's musical influences uh, Bowie's music Bowie is a, a screen presence so shall we listen to that now let's do it now, Ross, what this makes me think about is uh, your concept of thick text. Yeah, I mean, the point about Bowie is that he, he's one of the people from whom I got this idea of thick text, in a way. Because of the endless reinvention, anything you hear Bowie do, particularly the later material, always echoes. I mean, in, in, in that earlier passage where he was talking about people becoming all-round entertainers and then someone just turning up in white robes as if they were the Messiah. Yeah, Vince Taylor. Yeah. yeah. In Rock and Roll Suicide, he quotes Handel's Messiah. You know, the, 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 the repeat, the third time Wonderful comes round, it's wonderful from, uh, from, from, from uh, He Shall Reign. God, he's clever. Well, let's listen to some clips that I put together of Bowie talking about uh, where he was at in his head at the time yeah. that they were making the man let's who sold I wonder about a lot of things that happened to me in my time if I didn't fantasise and create these doppelgangers out of people that I wanted them to be something they really weren't. But as long as I believed that that's what they were, it gave me the energy to be convinced that I was worth doing it for. Uh, it's something that's often occurred to me that might be what I did a lot of. 
Wasn't it rather a dangerous thing to do, to play the roles? Well, I didn't know. I mean, when, when you're that mixed up, and I've been mixed up, man. <laughs> I mean, really, it was one doesn't know. One half of me is putting a concept forward, and the other half is trying to sort out my own um, emotions. And a lot of my space creations are, in fact, facets of me. I have now since discovered. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't even admit that to myself at the time. That I would put everything, just make everything a little kind of upfront personification of how I felt about things. Ziggy would be something, and it would relate to me now, I find. And Major Tom in Space Oddity was something. Lad Insane. They're all facets of me. And I wasn't really, I got lost at one point. I couldn't decide whether I was writing characters or whether the characters were writing me or whether we were all one and the same. One of the interesting things about what he says about the persona he adopted in his musical career is the fact that if you look at the surprising number of films he made for someone who was not particularly an actor... He went into other people's projects because they interested him. Hmm. And he found persona... Several of his most famous personae are other people's concepts that he identified with and made his own. If you look at the victimhood of Merry Christmas, Mr Lawrence, or the very confused, failed messiah figure of The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is also a study in addiction, which, of course, he was fighting at the time, Know, that uh, Thomas Newton ends up a hopeless alcoholic, but the Goblin King and that whole that whole ambivalence about sort of you. I want you to love me, and I want you to be frightened of me. The way that his Pontius Pilate is this tremendous figure of sexual menace, and there's that wonderful thing which I assume is Scorsese's idea of the screaming horse in the background that makes no obvious sense. I mean, why when Pontius Pilate is interrogating Jesus is there a horse screaming in the background? Because. And yet, somehow, it is absolutely right in, term, in Bowie terms that, of course, there's a screaming horse. Because, I mean, I haven't yet seen Linguini, but the, that last film role, which is very much him trying to play someone ordinary, mm. very much re reflects the way that, in his last years, while actually secretly creating an awful lot of music that we haven't, not all of which we've heard yet, he was being a husband and a father and living in New York. And there's that wonderful joke description of him saying, Oh, shall we have lasagna tonight? Uh, and that's not true, but somehow it gets something existentially right about his life in those last, that last decade after the heart attack, where he tried to have an ordinary life as well. Hmm. And that, too, was one of his personae. Well, let's listen to some uh, clips of Bowie's other acting roles. Look, I really think that you should go out with me. Where would we go? Oh, I don't know. We could eat or fish or spin around or something. I can't go out for three days. Why, have you been bad? I have a show to do on Wednesday. A show of what? I can't tell you. Right, then let's go to breakfast and then you can go right back home and do whatever it is that you do do at home. Then... What are we gonna eat? We can't eat eggs. There's a salmonella scare. We can't... Porridge. We'll eat porridge. So you are the king of the Jews? King's your word. 
Well, you are Jesus of Nazareth, aren't you? Yes, I am. Well, that's what they're saying. You are the king, the Messiah. It's also said that you do miracles. Is this good magic or bad magic? Could we have some kind of uh, demonstration? I mean, can you do a trick for me now, say? No. I'm not a trained animal. I'm not a magician. Well, that's disappointing. You are happy here, are you not, John? Oh, yes. The baths have rid you of your odour, have they not? First chance I've had to pay regular. Leave. <laughs> Three meals a day delivered to your room? Yes, sir. Oh. This is your promised land, is it not? A roof, food, care, protection. Oh, right, Mr. Trips. I'll bet you don't know what to call this. No, sir, I don't. You call it home? Never had a home before. Well, you have one now. Say it, John. Home. Home? No, no, I mean really say it. I have a home. This is my... Come on. I have a home. This is my home. This. Is my home. I have a home. I have for as long as I like. That is what home is. That is what is home. There we heard a couple of Bowie's famous film roles, and the last uh, clip we heard was his Broadway performance as John Merrick, the Elephant Man. Yes. Now, which I hadn't thought about because. Again, that sense of the doomed freak. And, you know, the, again, that sense of at once being a victim and separate, and, and by being a victim and separate, intensely human. I mean, one it, uh, of the... Th- it, it, it was just, uh, I was just remind, um, forgot about the, the, his role in his, The Last Temptation of Christ, and I thought that, wow, that, that really kind of fits in thematically with this kind of narrative of messiah narrative yes. um of this outsider coming in uh, which is which he's 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 done so many times so it's starting with ziggy um and uh in the man who fell to earth and actually it was before even before ziggy and a lot of um the stuff in hunky dory where he's referencing um, Nietzsche and Superman and uh, Zarathustra, which itself was, yeah. of course, um, a, a big reaction to the Jesus Christ Messiah narrative. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and the the John Merrick, the John Merrick, um, less of a Messiah narrative, but still um, the, the alien coming in um, to a society to which he does not belong. Um, oh, absolutely, and. The sense, of the, the sense of the Goblin King as both threatening and, demar- and, 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 and wanting to be loved. Um, and it's one of the interesting things about, about the performance as Pilate is that in that role he's not the Messiah, he's hmm. ordinary society dealing with a Messiah, hmm. that he 
gets to play he gets to play both roles again mm. that's what i mean by thick text it's the fact that Expl you, explain thick text to us yeah thick text is the idea that when we read or consume a work of art we consume not only the present text but all the texts it was all the texts it draws on all the texts that it might be revised into being and that's the thing because bar us extraordinary revelations in the material it's let, let, let yet to be released uh, Bowie's work is now in a sense a closed text we now after Lazarus the song on Black Star and the video that goes with it because he recycles the leotard look from station to station it's not just that station to station is echoed in Lazarus it's that Station to station now, re you know, retroactively echoes Lazarus. I'm in heaven. So the, the Bowie of station to station is linked to the Bowie of the, of the last album. I've got drama, can't be stolen. Everybody knows me now. Bowie at the height of his career is linked to the dying Bowie because we now see we this is the point I was making about consuming as a, as a millennial mm. uh, the entire career or the entire career up to that point as if it were on a flat level mm -hmm. you know because all of these things layer over each other and one of the things about Bowie because he was such a conscious artist we know for example what his favorite books were we know what his favorite favourite albums work because he told us mm. so there's a real consciousness and a real considered consciousness of what it is to be the overall persona of Bow Bowie who is all these people and makes those people echo each other it's the fact that the Piero from Ashes to Ashes both is and is not Major Tom mm. you know that you know that that the the, the, so the song Ashes to Ashes says Major Tom's a junkie which wasn't true and was no longer true, but had been true in the interim. You know, that there's this extraordinarily artful awareness of, of his career as a whole at every point in that career. And that's one of the reasons he's so much more fascinating than an awful lot of figures from the rock music, because he's a considered artist. I mean, you know, I, I talked talk elsewhere in this, in this about the late style. Explain the concept of late style to us. Oh well, I mean, I, the late—it's an idea that Edward Said had, and I'd love to know if Bowie had actually read it, uh, read the essay on the essays on late style. It's the idea that some artists, towards the end of their career, one example would be Richard Strauss in the Four Last Songs, which we know is one of Bowie's favourite bits of music. Sit back and produce a way of writing about life and death and art that is considered, that is, in a sense, classical and stripped, that is very much a way of making a final statement that's also a progressive statement, that it's, 
it's not sitting back on your laurels. It's moving for it's moving forward at the same time as looking backwards. And Said, uh, in one of his last books, wrote wrote these rather good essays on Strauss and Yeats and Bach. And I think if Bowie didn't know those essays, he certainly knew it intuitively because I think that's very much how Black Star reads to me. And I mean, literally, I listened to Black Star for the first time and said, oh. He's been reading Edward Said. <laughs> I'm very interested by, by this idea of um, Bowie in the last decade of his life living in this uh, beautiful glass and steel pod on Lafayette Street in Lower Manhattan. That even though the end of his life, I mean, despite his ill health, he seemed to have been quite happy. He was married mm. to Iman and had a family. But living in New York, he was still a resident alien. He was still a an outsider or a foreigner. And chose that and delighted in it. And also was apparently going into the studio every few days, laying down tracks that we've yet to hear, and eventually in the last couple of years producing these two remarkable last albums and uh, making the final selection of uh, the retrospective greatest hits, Nothing Has Changed. And... He'd always refused to to let there be a stage show. And then again, he put together Lazarus the Stage Show and was very hands-on about it. It's that sense, because of the, the heart attack in 2004, he knew that he was on notice and he made the most of time. And I think that's amazingly impressive, but also personally very moving, you know, because it's that sense that even before he knew he had cancer, he knew that time was running out. I wonder if, um, in, uh, if um, in the way that uh, Blackstar uh, looks back at his previous career, mm. um, I haven't got round to listening to the album Beyond the, uh, the, Beyond the Song, Blackstar and, and Lazarus, which are two fantastic songs, um, nor have I seen the Broadway uh, musical, no. um, so I, I can't comment too much. But I, I speculate whether um, I, I do think that he is referencing um, back to his original career so much. But it's interesting that um, you know, the, the story of Lazarus, um, who of course dies but comes back to life, and I'm wondering if that's some twist he's making on yeah, this, on this well. yeah. story that um, has recurred so often throughout his career of. The alien who comes who comes into society which doesn't blow on and gets killed by the society. Ziggy, uh, man who fell to earth, mm. um, uh, the elephant man. And is he saying that you know? Um, th- does he have a new relationship to this story? Maybe perhaps post this heart attack, two thousand six or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, when he's living in New York, he's seems to be happy. As you're saying, is he saying that? The, that this person may die but come back to life, mm. as it were, again. And well, but there, but there's that sense of Lazarus as having, having seen things beyond the grave that he will tell you. I mean, it's, I can't remember the exact quote from The Wasteland, but, you know, where, where Elliot's, Elliot has a moment where Lazarus comes back from the, the grave and will tell you, I, uh, you know, I, I will tell you all. And you've got in the video that amazing image of the bandage over the eyes with the buttons mm. for eyes, mm. you know, that somehow dying gives you a different sight. Mm. You know, that it's 
it's the prophetic role. Uh, it's Theresius, you know, the the the, the you know mm. the, the 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 prophet who has been who has led many lives, uh, you know, as, as male and female, as as young and old, and knows everything and cannot change anything. And there's this tremendous sense of cultural resonance that Bowie was an astonishingly well-read musician, an astonishingly thoughtful. It's that sense with the personae of... We, we know that he was very interested in Jane's idea of the bicameral mind and the idea that at, a, at certain points in human history people believed that they, that they were receiving messages from the gods. Mm. You know, that a lot, of, a lot of thought was conceived of culturally as messages from the gods, as a sort of possession. And though I, don't, you know, I think he was much too smart to swallow these ideas that have been discredited, he could see the metaphysical resonance of that idea. Bowie Memorial in 2022. So as well as that conversation with Ros and Gabriella Balf, we also recorded around the time uh, that David Bowie had died, a very long conversation, very interesting, with Andy Oppenheimer and Jay Maloney, uh, two leading Bowie fans who were sort of part of the public grieving process, because I think everyone remembers uh, Jane's amazing back tattoo of Bowie from the images from people's mourning in this space. I mean, where we're standing now, it was yes. piles and piles yeah. of bouquets. Yeah. Um, extraordinary thing. So, should we have a listen to that conversation? Yes, please. I remember getting up at six in the morning because I walk my dog and everything and I've put on Facebook like you do and there was the tweet from um, Duncan about the family dying and I thought I thought how awful I thought somebody's put a hoax up somebody's put a hoax up uh, uh, and the album's just come out who's done this you know I thought Ugh. and I have the news on I always have the news on and I thought it would be on the news something like this I thought so I wasn't Though one friend said we'd better tweet Jane and I couldn't get on and I thought what's that about and then I was here and I was looking and I just thought oh, this is just you know Facebook being you know and then all of a sudden it went breaking news David Bowie I screamed I cried my daughter's been dreading this my friends mm. have been dreading this day mm. with me I cried I rang up my daughter who lives just down the road I went, Scarlett, she said, I'm on my way, Mum. And that was quarter past seven in the morning, or 20 past seven. She went, I'm on my way. And I was in my dressing gown, and I could just say, Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. And I, I was just shocked. I was absolutely 100% shocked. Scarlett came round, and I, I mean, 
quite difficult now. Mm. And Scarlett, because Scarlett uh, said to me, um, I said, I can't go to work. I said, I just can't go to work. And I didn't know what to do. And then one of the, the Bowie people that I know, friends, said, we're all going down to Brixton. This was about nine o'clock. And I thought to myself, well, Scarlett said, Mum, I think you should go. Get yourself together. As I do when I always lose somebody, I always dress up. It's mm -hmm. some, I, I always dress up anyway, but I always, mm. it's something that makes me feel, yeah. it's the wonderful. way I am, it's, it's me. wonderful, wish everybody you know. was like it. And I have my tattoo, usually, because it is a cold day. I didn't really feel the cold, but because I was so in shock over this news. And, and then Scarlett's boyfriend turned up and they, they, for the ride. And we went down to Brixton, and then the angel tube, I took a photo of it, they said the star man has gone or something, and I broke down in tears. Do you know how they have yeah. it on the bill? It was like star man's gone, and I, I cried, went, oh, I'm Scarlett's like mom, because she, she came with me, which is great, because I think she knew. And I grabbed my fur, and I put one of my wraps on, and of course the tattoo, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of it, it's yeah. part, it, it, it links me to Bowie. It's you know he's a huge, big person in my life musically, uh, fashion, everything. So obviously I'm going to show that. And when we got there, I felt a bit. I felt. I said I feel really nice. I was. I'm. It's morning, and we did the flowers, and my daughter helped me with that, and I put this beautiful glittery mask over the flowers, and I went. And I didn't see it, and I went to knelt down and see I've got black glasses on because I've been crying all morning and uh, and then I didn't even I wasn't actually aware and then when I turned round I had the world press I it was obviously and my daughter and her boyfriend said they just went on me and they they kept asking me like I'm from Zero's News and um, do you think Bowie was an alien and what do you do this and I screamed out to my daughter and I went don't you just love our America I went, yeah. I went Scarlet I'm from Russia TV and what influenced it and I was like I, 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 said yes. I, I didn't I know I, I should have said yes you would have had to be an alien to have written all those, that music Which I nearly did get one last week, and my friend Don said. Uh, While Jane, Jane does a class, I just yeah. do. Really, can't. I've got loads. So we're looking at Andy's tattoos of missiles uh -huh. on yeah. his forearm. And um, we were talking about whether I should have a lightning flash done on the back, because mm. that probably would go. Yes, this, this bleeding. So we're now looking at a tattoo of uh, <laughs> of the atom. Yeah, this, this the atom went a bit sort of it went off on one of it. Well, they do. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite natural. I've got an H bomb up there, but you know, we, we fortunately it's not summer yet, so we're not. We'll leave that one. We'll leave that one uh, under wraps for a while. Um, but uh, yes, the, the 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 black star thing is is become. Well, it's because we're in the internet era, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and of course everything's going to be... If you look at the Facebook postings, there's thousands and thousands of postings about, you know, all sorts of obscure references. And, and you always go trust but verify. Yeah. Mm. 
Mm. Mm. I mean, there's that very odd post um, about Black Star as as an occultist statement, which oh, I thought. Yes. I mm. think this is yeah. probably bollocks, but it reads really well. Looking at the ins, because Jane playing it to me last night with the insert, you know, and all the album. Oh right, I, I've never seen anything as dark as this. It's it's dark matter in the universe kind of territory, yeah. isn't it? You know, we can't even see the blinking words on the page, deliberately done so. Yeah, um, it's as black as black can be. Yeah, um, I was very interested by something you were saying, Andy, about um, how the music of that sort of Blitz era was quite poppy. Because in fact, yeah. if you think about what Danceable. What, dance. what low begat was yeah. Cabaret Voltaire or Fade yeah. Grey? And oh, no, there are tracks on low which are totally. I mean, like Be My Wife. I've done a cover yeah. of it. I hate to mention it, folks. I have done a cover. It has. I couldn't believe how many times it's been heard. I didn't even realise. On the day he died, my friend who I do Oppenheimer Mark II. That's one of the bands I do. This lad in Vienna. He posted the cover that we'd done. I had forgotten entirely about it because of the day because we were so carried away I had even forgotten that we'd done this cover we did it about a, I don't know, a year or so ago and he posted it it says this is just our humble effort you know as a tribute to mm -hmm. the greatest ever oh my god that was really because it morphs from the Newton character although I didn't probably think of that yeah. consciously I mean they're both but secular they're, they're both secular Christ figures yeah they're, 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 they're yeah, the they're, they are both stories yeah. of uh, 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 yeah. uh, of the failed save, saviour who's martyred for trying to save yes and they're sort of uh, almost they're part of the establishment but they're kicked out of the establishment That was uh, Ros and myself talking to Andy and Jane. Weren't they a treat? Andy Oppenheimer has, since we recorded that six years ago, uh, had many books out. But oh. Two of them, his two science fiction books, Fields of Orion and Odyssey and Fields of Orion The Mission, are both available as ebooks on Amazon or wherever you procure your ebooks. As I know you, Shoti Narayan Swami, I want to do. <laughs> Well, that was uh, wonderful to revisit. I edited it down a bit. There's actually a much longer version of that whole interview. Very, very interesting. I think very moving as well because Jane talks very openly about mm. just what a tough time she had when Bowie yes. died. Yes. Uh, so I put all that interview online as well. Um, there's a, there'll be a link on the, you know, the, the blog post and the the show notes that go the with this. Notes. Yeah. Um, but you know, g listen to that whole interview because they re really are uh, both Jane and Andy amazing people and I'm so lucky through making these programmes and sharing them with you Shruti but also sharing them with our lovely listeners 
uh, that I get to meet these amazing people. Like Toby Jones. Yes, well, I mean, I think meeting, meeting is... Brushing shoulders with Brushing, Toby Jones. Yes, yes. I mean, re- Brief eye contact I with Toby I still can't get over that. It's we're kind of yeah. remaking this first show. <laughs> and just to kind of make the point about the overlap between movies and yep. London. Yep. Um, yeah. There's Toby Jones. There's Toby Jones actually walks past us while yep. I'm doing the intro. <laughs> well, I never. Well, to round off this uh, feast of interviews about the man who fell to earth and Bowie's overall influence. We've saved the best till last. So here's a conversation we had two years ago now, because of the pandemic, we weren't able to just make all the bits to connect it all together. Uh, But now... Our own, our very own. Mr. Jeffrey Ryman, uh, the esteemed author and science fiction author, and also a friend of ours. All around awesome person. He really is. But we're here now in Fitzrovia. You? Posh. <laughs> All of London's posh now. There couldn't be a David Bowie now. There'd be nobody, nowhere for David Bowie to live. He'd be out in Ashford or even further. If he was lucky, he might end up in Brighton. But he wouldn't be able to set up the Beckham Arts Lab. He wouldn't be able to rent Haddon Hall. He wouldn't be able to be David Bowie unless he somehow was in the north and one of the more interesting cities up north, but he couldn't, couldn't do it in London, no. So I suppose what, what interests me, because we're also thinking about The Man Who Fell to Earth as his kind of main uh, film acting role, mm-hmm. which of course it hasn't got his music in it. He recorded five or six tracks and for various contraction and complex reasons, they didn't use them. Mm-hmm. And they ended up on load, they're the, the instrumental tracks. I got quite obsessed with the movie, but you're talking about when it came out. And I had set up an appointment to interview Nicholas Roig. Good Lord. Oh, and wow. About it. And I'd really worked hard. I think I knew at the time more about the movie, or thought about the movie quite a lot. And But he cancelled the last minute. It was going to be an interview for New Worlds. But it all fell through. But I was quite obsessed with the movie. I thought it was a very important movie at the time. But I remember curiously little about it now. And what I do remember is all of its faults and none of its virtues, which is a bit weird. That's interesting. Well, that's what happens when you teach creative writing. You get hypersensitized to faults. In terms of where Bowie was coming from, and the connection to London. We've been to where he was from. It must have made some sort of impression on him. Uh, you certainly hear in his voice, you still hear that kind of South London brogue. But that, that London culture's gone. If you, if you look to young, or hear young people in the tube now, they're talking uh, with a heavily inflected uh, ac- new accent. That's a product of, of multicultural London. And that old, um, oh, you know, Johnny Reggae Reggae, Johnny Reggae Reggae, Johnny Reggae Reggae, lay it on me. This is a moment of Jonathan King entering our podcast. It's not Jonathan King. It was a group called the Piglets or something. 
Um, but uh, Bowie also capitalized on that. I'm not talking radio language. I'm going to be talking the London around me. And that London has gone. It's not there anymore. So, you know, in many ways, for many reasons, not least Mrs. Thatcher, mm. that London's gone. And David Bowie could not happen now. You know, he could be discovered as a, a boy band thing, but he could maybe, if he'd gone on, Simon, what's his name? Simon Cowell. Cowell. The London that we're in, Fitzrovia, was mm -hmm. made a big impression on David Bowie. His manager uh, for a time, uh, Ken Pitts, had a flat near here, mm -hmm. and he was staying there, and he roamed around. So. Mm -hmm. Some institutions that are gone, some institutions that are still here in this bit of sure not quite so. I wasn't here. There's a blue plaque for Robert Marley, who lived in this building. So Bob Marley's plaque is on oh, the wow. building. Um, you have to understand that London in those days had a bit of posh, a bit of rough, a bit of the middle class. And it was a patchwork quilt. The further you moved out from the center, the more run down everything became, till at some point you were driving through what we would now consider to be poverty, uh, even in the 70s. But this, this immediate area was not posh. Um, uh, just up slightly that way is where they put all the immigrants. They just moved them into public housing there. So around here you had Bul even when I, when I was here at first, bulk shops selling really huge bags of rice, very large bags of different kinds of spices, because this was uh, where they took all the, the immigrants from Asia and they put them here. And then all the, hit, uh, all the squats were up, just also in the same area, the squats were up around Drummond Street. There were squats, uh, there's no accident, the first Neil's yard, which was all organic food, which that day was a sure sign of hippies, was around here. It was very, yeah, London was completely different, very run down, but very, very different from the London you have now. Covent Garden, when I first got here, was still going. Co the real Covent Garden wasn't a bunch of, you know, nail spas and bookshops and luxury this or that. It was a proper place where retailers went to get their days flowers, fish, vegetables. Remember once there was a big pit around, dark, there was an excavation, I can't remember why, maybe it was just, at, I don't know why they were excavating. I looked down and I saw an elephant and a giraffe and they were being stored there, just out of harm's way. I mean, London was kind of funky. The first virgin records, the first virgin anything in London was a record shop of about four racks above a shoe shop, not a million miles away from Tottenham Road tube station on Oxford Street. And you went, climbed, you skirted the shoe shop and climbed these stairs, and that was Virgin Records, which, as Virgin Records was on one of the main streets in Brighton, and it was its hippie logo, was a bunch of, was two twin fairies with big dragonfly wings joined at the hip. How weird. Drawn by Roger Dean. Drawn by Roger Dean. Another one was the same, a slightly, an unjoined at the hip fairy riding a giant frog or a dog, 
full-sized frog, and she was just bouncing along. As you do. As you do. It was very run-down and seedy London, but always accessible, and you always felt it was yours and not somebody else's, and you had a huge social wage. If you didn't have a job, you'd get money. There were all kinds of writers living in squats, Boy George lived in a squat. If you went up that right and turned left, there was a squat with Boy George and all that crew in it uh, on Warren Street. This is mid seventies when uh, it's a little bit later than that. Slightly the mid seventies moved started. You see, we, we think of them as very separate eras, but there was this blurring of the sixties and the early seventies. The mid seventies, which punk and then punk blurred. And London hadn't changed that much, blurred into the squat era of uh, Culture Club. There was a spray can, uh, somebody had sprayed on one of the august stones of one of the university buildings, Culture Club, with spray can, and that was Boy George promoting his band at the time. Um, it was very different. Dambaduzo uh, Marashera, the Jimi Hendrix of East African fiction, uh, around the corner there, there's a pub, but I can't remember what it's called. I think it's the Mortimer Arms or something. Jesus, I can't remember the pub. It, it's round the corner. I mean, it's so close. But it was the African literary pub. And they were all, I was fascinated. I, I never quite summed up the courage, because I had nothing to say to them, except <laughs> you guys look really cool. And one of them was Dambodizumara Shera, and the pub is in one of his more, out of more explosively bizarre novels. And that's where they all were. They were just around the corner. How much did the old London imprint itself on Fitzrovia around here? Because I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that places David well, Bowie knew that are still around were places like uh, Pollock's Toy Museum. He used to go in there and buy little sort of toys when? and tricks. About 67, 68. Okay, Pollock's. See, that's before my time. Uh, but Pollock's is still, still I think going. is still there. Yeah. But it was certainly one of the weirder things on Whitfield Street. Whitfield Street is where I worked. I worked for a company that supplied movies to BOAC, as it then was, for the in-flight, and to the Merchant Marine. And me and the other guy who did the job, he was senior to me, he got all the good films. Um, I, we would saw every single movie that came out, and we wrote a review and an order recommendation for BOAC, the Merchant Marine, and various other things. British Overseas Airways that, no, the British overseas air service um, but it became British Airways and then got privatized but that's what we were doing uh, so it was it was awful because uh, early to mid 70s there's no medium in history that had as low standards as, as movies really uh, not radio not novels not graphic novel even comics didn't stoop as low as most movies. You know, you're talking um, Shaw Brothers vampire movies. You're talking Italian horror movies. You're talking American video nasties, which were so disgusting. And you just see this avalanche of terrible films. Billy Jack? No, Billy Jack was a bit before me. <clears throat> I, I, I would have seen Over the Town that dreaded Sundown or all these awful films which are all about tying women up with barbed wire and grinding cigarettes on their back and then killing them and then the next slightly wayward female comes along and you 
drive a truck over her, and then you set someone else alight, and this was considered entertainment. <clears throat> By the time I was through doing that job, I didn't go to a movie for about three years, and only went to theater. London and theater. I showed up in London, went in, paid pittance for the bad seats, and saw Benjamin Britten's Death in Venice. You know, I walked in as if it were a movie to a, a play called Bingo, which I've always rated. You just walked in like it was a movie, paid your money, sat down, play about Shakespeare, starring John Gielgud and uh, Leo, what, who, God, Leo Mortimer? Jesus, long gone. Um, but it was written by Edward Bond. It was just a brilliant play. And people just walk in and see John Gielgud, and I think his name is Leo Mortimer. Oh, Leo, Leo McKern. Leo McKern. Leo McKern. He was Ben Johnson. And they did all the tropes that have become so familiar since, you know, son, Hamlet, dying young, um, wife, and after, blah, 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 blah. It was Shakespeare in retirement coming to terms. It was, it was a very good and rather hard-hitting play in some ways, I remember. But that was London, too. And what you were the cinemas like? I'm, you were talking about Whitfield Screen. Single screen. Huge. Um, I remember being scandalized because uh, 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 Pasadena used a camera on. It was going to be a huge film, everyone thought. And it was sexy. It had nudity. And they charged a pound to get in. And I remember being so angry and so outraged that I walked away and didn't go in. Because you could buy a, a slim not one of the thick ones, but a slim penguin paperback for 25 pence. A pint of beer, okay, it was Watney's Red Barrel. I mean, the pubs were in the grip of these awful breweries with their truly terrible beer. But it was 10p a pint, you know, so a pound to go into the cinema. 10 times, imagine going to the cinema and being asked to pay 10 times the price of a pint of beer. You're talking what, 60 quid? You just didn't do it. You just couldn't do it. It was uh, uh, such a different world. It was very friendly, very run down, not beautiful. Uh, everything was run down and sort of never squalid, never seedy, just run down. Um, the gay bars were tiny and furtive and hidden and underground or, you know, only on the Saturday morning for two hours was it gay. Um, I remember the astounding thrill when Bangs, which is where there's now some bland office block going up, for a while for a while it was the Astoria. For most of your listeners might remember the Astoria on Charing Cross Road, but before that, there was it was another club. But then on nights when they couldn't fill it, it became Bangs, and I was so proud of it. It was this to me vast gay bar which I'd never seen the like of, you know, with dancing and disco and everything. It was very exciting. Um, that was on Charing Cross Road. That's another thing that's gone because of Crossrail. So mm. many of these um, institutions that are kind of pushpins in memory of the post-war period. Mm -hmm. um, did you go to the Scarlet Film Club, which is around the corner, when yeah. it was at, at yeah. in... Um, the it basement of Charlotte it, Street. Yeah, it didn't have a long life. I remember I kept thinking I'd go there and, and didn't so much. 
cinema going in those days were these cavernous um, picture palaces. And actually, they weren't good places to see movies in. I remember seeing a James Bond movie in about 1972, 73. Not Live and Let Die, because I saw that in Oxford with the people I was going to school with there. The next one, which whatever, the, and I went to see it. It wasn't Moonraker, I can't remember. Some stricken Roger Moore, James Bond movie. And the throw distance in these scenarios was so vast that the image was actually very pallid. And the sound wasn't good. And it wasn't a good place to see movies in. Uh, uh, the very first conversion of The View, I remember, had all the screens cantilevered at the wrong angle. Mm. So the top half of every image of every film was out of focus because the screen was tilted the wrong way. You couldn't focus on the bottom half and the top half at the same time. There's a great deal of nostalgia about some of these old cinemas. I talk about the Electric in Notting Hill a lot. Well, that, as well. that was a brilliant cinema. It was small and ran good films. The one I missed was on Oxford Street, and I can't remember its name, the Academy. It had these highly stylized, absolutely unique. What it would do is it would turn an image from each movie that ran there into a fake woodcut. And on the tube, you absolutely knew an Academy screening by the completely unique style of its posters. And it was the cinema for art films and anything interesting and for grown-ups. And it was really good. And I, I, Now, my memory might be wrong, but I think it also had a membership aspect. And if it was membership, you could go and see films like... Um, Pasolini's, what, Sallow, is it? It's a pretty horrible film. <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. horrible film. It's a horrible film, but you, ever, you, know, you could go and see it on a membership basis. The Cameron was on, not at the big cinema on Leicester Square, but the other one um, that was uh, along the, the, south, the south edge, which is now multi-screen, as is the Big Odeon. The Big Odeon was a single screen. That huge space was one single screen. To say, terrible place to see films. So it sounds as though it was a, as in the late sixties and sort of late seventies, was still a London that, and I vaguely remember this because I was a kid and came up here sometimes. Uh, people didn't have a lot of money necessarily. Things were looking a bit shabby still after the war, but there was stuff to do and there was sort of exploration. No, no, I mean it was amazing. I remember I used to send copies of Time Out back to my folks because LA is. Dirty little secrets is how boring it is. It's miles and miles of parking lots, supermarkets, liquor stores, nail spas, tire centers, and somewhere in the middle of it is Hollywood, but it's the snootiest city in the world because everyone's just moved there, so no one tells you where anything is. And you just can drive for hours through this Death Star landscape of the lowest grade kind of commercial premises the odd liquor store, which is the center of culture because it has comic books, uh, or had, I don't know, but you could get magazines and comic books in a liquor store as well as liquor. So that's where you buy your comics. You, in the tents, I had to go quite far. I had to go, oh, it was a long bus trip from um, the Veterans Administration Hospital at the end of Santa Monica all the way past 26th Street down to 10th Street Liquor Store, which was the nearest premises that stopped comics and that was 
half an hour, 40 minute bus ride. Well, I've taken that, that bus ride all the way down to the beach and it, yes. it's the, the whole bus ride either way is about an hour and a half if you go the full length of Santa Monica Boulevard. Mon it, this is Wilshire Boulevard. Wilshire Boulevard, okay. Wilshire, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard had Papa Box Bookshop, which had all these fascinating and slightly risque books. And was I was associated in my mind with the free press, which had personal ads in the back, which was about the only place you could meet another gay guy. So that was where you pick up, this is the, the LA free press, or the freak, yeah, the which freak. is a formative underground newspaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was any really couple important. of places. There would not have been a gay liberation movement anywhere in the world without the freak, I don't think, and the village voice. But, you know, that was where you could uh, pick, anyway. Um, it was weird. I mean, it, it would, would be like telling your best friend that you're actually a pedophile and you fucked five-year-olds to say that you were gay. Yeah. It would be like that. People, you know. Um, in fact, you cannot recreate for people what being gay at that time was like. It was completely unacceptable. Mm. And there were very few gay people anywhere, they thought. You know, it was... It's, it's amazing now that it's, you'd almost think that most people were queer in some way. But anyway, we're talking about London, we're talking about David Bowie. Well, I think it connects in the sense that in other places that I have in mind, uh, the Giaconda Coffee Bar on Denmark Street, of course Denmark Street is known for having a couple of music shops selling mm -hmm. very nice guitars and sheet music there, but it used to be the centre of uh, London and therefore Britain's equivalent in Pan Alley, mm -hmm. and had this uh, cafe there the Giaconda, there's a famous little bit of film of a, a modded up Bowie mm -hmm. just walking off the street through the front door, it's just a tiny little sequence of film. Um, but he would have gone in there and sat with uh, possibly Elton John mm -hmm. without knowing it was going to be Elton, you know, it was oh, still Elton John. Or knowing, knowing was, who yeah. Mark Boland was because yeah. they were friends. The one I regret is they've just torn down a strip of shops um, across the street from the last tearing down of shops they did is they try and rescue or turn Centre Point into something. But there was a cafe on Tottenham Court Road tube station on that little street that ran up past uh, where, you know, if you had the Cafe Munchen, which no longer exists either, but was science fiction's main pub, where for a time all I had to do was walk in there and I know that I would see Dick Jude or Ian M. Banks or Roz or somebody. It was like my local science fiction pub. It was heaven. But then just across the road from that was a place called First Out. Love First Out. Which was... London's main gay non-sexual venue it was like hey you can go to this place and be yourself and you're not trying to pick somebody else you want some cake you want some conversation you want to hear a bit of poetry reading in the evening downstairs you could do it I'm so proud of that place and of course it's just completely gone I mean the, the very venue has disappeared which is living in London I mean you designed a building and you're still alive when they tear it down as an old 60s dinosaur. But I can imagine that David Bowie could live interstitially in London. There are record shops everywhere, there were tiny clubs everywhere, there were lots of interesting people. The demographic was the exact reverse of what it is now. This huge swelling of energetic, nice young people. And it, the whole, the legacy of hippiedom 
in the early 70s was it was really very unstylish to be angry or aggressive or, you know. Uh, in fact, the term, you know, antisocial and socialism had been conflated. To be antisocial meant that you were also antisocialism. Mm -hmm. You were anti this world we were all building of, you know, dyed blue hair and, you know, tolerance and, you know, welfare state. And um, I, I don't know what we thought we were doing because we, we obviously had no idea how the world worked, but we thought there would be a, a revolution and it would be to our advantage and it wouldn't be a revolution that hurt anybody because we weren't Russians. It was a revolution for civilization. It never happened. And smart people like Andy Oppenheimer were saying this is going to lead to a conservative backlash to end all. And we're still in it. The conservatives, the people, the older conservatives are still living in horror at the internal exile they faced reading the Daily Telegraph while the culture went completely. Hippie stroke progressive stroke left wing stroke trade unionist and they're still reacting to that and that was one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn gave them the heebie-jeebies. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Mr. Bowie, however, who um, I only saw live once, but was live quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. He really could sing. I saw the Thin White Tube tour, a vast venue. I think it was either Earl's, I don't think it was Wembley, I think it was Earl's Court. So I was pretty far back. Um, but in that way that a really good performer, I mean, there's very few performances that have remained with me. Most recently would be Christine and the Queens, or Chris and the Queens now. A just phenomenal performance. Uh, Billy Bragg with, Beat Nigs and oh god what was her name Michelle Schacht was another one of The Who in 1975 and Bowie about the same time 75 just amazing performance so um, but I didn't when I was at Sussex a lot of nice long haired interesting people like me loved Bowie mm. and I wasn't so sure I thought some of Hunky Dory was good. I thought Ziggy Stardust was hype. I thought Aladdin Sane had three good tracks on it, and the rest were interesting that you didn't want to hear more than about four times. I didn't buy Diamond Dogs because it looked like, uh, to me, it looked like there were three tracks on it, all the same, and they kept playing the awful intro, mm. which was just one of the worst pieces of anything ever made. I mean, as, a, as lyrics, as music, as anything, it was just dreadful. The American version, single version of Rebel Rebel was good, but the one that's on everything here was, I didn't like it. So I never heard, for years and years, I never heard the 1984 stuff, which mm -hmm. I would have liked. Mm -hmm. But quite liked, young Americans didn't buy it, liked some of it. It wasn't until Station to Station came out and I didn't listen to anything else for a year. And it was that, you can't hear it now, that amazing cross, a new cross-fertilization between white music and black music. 
yeah, we were watching some clips of um, Bowie and Luther, Luther Vandross and the other singers uh, recording bits of station to station footage recorded in the recording studio. Is it station to station or Young Americans? Because I don't think Luther had anything to do with That was Carlos Almodovar, the guitarist, who could play funk and rock at the same time as a pun. I don't think anybody else can do that. It was really quite amazing. The, the power um, from them of that fusion of mm -hmm. white and black music, mm -hmm. that he, even in that cracked actor, uh, Alan Yentov omnibus documentary, where he's yes. in the back of the limo talking about, you know, I, there's a fly in my milk and I'm getting a lot of milk. Mm -hmm. He was being nourished by black America and soul, even mm -hmm. as he was thin and seemingly quite spaced as out. Carl as Mada Carlos Almodovar said, I walked into the room and it was the whitest person I'd ever seen. The whitest person I could imagine was sitting there completely unfazed. Compl because the other thing about Bowie is, I think you have to understand he was genuinely fearless. And that's why a basically straight man with a little bit by around the edges would say all this fucking bi stuff that Jagger does is so fucking boring. No, I'm gay and I always have been. On national TV, and I cannot tell you what that meant to gay people. It was like, thank fuck. Somebody has just had the guts to say, no, I'm, I'm so hypersexual that sometimes it slops over. No, 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 I'm gay. He wasn't. He was lying. He was David Bowie. Every word he said, including and and though, was a lie. But in a funny sort of way, if you lie that much, it's actually very truthful and that was him the genius of Bowie and I think you don't really appreciate it just what a genius I think he's first off I think he's Britain's best ever songwriter I did this I took the Beatle albums threw out the cover versions and divided the songs between John Lennon Paul McCartney and George Harrison rated them as absolutely irreplaceable all-time masterpieces like Tomorrow Never Knows I Am the Walrus Eleanor Rigby yesterday. Really good stuff like things we said today. Hey Jude. Stuff that you quite like to listen to like Hey Bulldog or Eight Days a Week. And stuff that's beginning to get a bit ropey like, you know, it's just filler like Nowhere Man. I did the same to Bowie. So by splitting the Beatles up into individuals, Bowie won hands down. And, you know, this. That's it. He's Britain's greatest songwriter. Uh, he did cover versions, of course, but you realize his genius when you start tracing. First off, everyone says, "Oh, he just he almost curated his LPs. He just pulled them together." The person he most reminds me of is Duke Ellington, because he would pull these people together and they produce these fantastic licks, and he. Wrote his lyrics by cutting up anything and pasting them back together. Uh, but he had an artistic vision. Um, and these people said, well, you know, I, I did that. And they went off and they promptly disappeared because they never did anything as interesting ever again. Same thing would happen with uh, Duke Ellington's musicians. There was just something that Ellington was able to do to bring out everybody's creativity. Now, Bowie did come up with those lines those melody lines, but he was also able to, to just energize somehow 
musicians who I'm not sure we really would have heard much. I mean, Nick Bronson's good, but do you really think we would have noted, remember Mick Bronson now if it wasn't for Bowie? But you pick up stuff like Transformer that he produced, and it's not perfect. You pick up Iggy, Iggy Pop's two albums with Bowie, you think, fucking hell, on what came. I mean, I'm not knocking Iggy by any means. I have a lot of time for Iggy Pop or Iggy Stooge. You know, there is that irresistible hookiness to the stuff he was. But the two albums he did with Bowie was good. A Mark Bahupo, if he produced, you suddenly realized. Yeah, you know, this is not someone who's relying on other people to do stuff. If he's producing this himself, then that's pretty good. And it's odd how the stuff he produced comes out. It's a little bit like John Cale and The Velvet Underground. You listen to the albums he produced. Like Horses by Patti Smith. And Jesus Christ, fella. You were dead good, weren't you? Something that's very odd about the man who fell to earth is the absence of Bowie music, and so why Bowie that's is there in the thing. film. He's there yeah. as an actor. And he's there as the character, and it's such mm-hmm. it's so good it wasn't a jukebox movie. I mean, it, it could have been, you know, it, 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 it would have been misread and too easily to misread if it had been a jukebox movie. And he wouldn't have been able to write that many songs for it under, under those circumstances. They would have had some of his greatest hits. You know, he would have been... Well, let's put Starman in there for mm-hmm. a bit, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, and I don't think it would have worked as well. It's a shame I didn't know you were going to talk to me about the man who fell to earth because I haven't seen it in forty years. I saw it about, <laughs> I saw it about ten times in a row, and in those days, the only way to do that was go to the cinema and see it. I got quite obsessed with mm-hmm. it. I got obsessed with the um, the way in which there was this black character with a white mm-hmm. wife. That was highly unusual for the time. I mean, really unusual, mm-hmm. so much so it was a little bit worrying. Like biracial couples didn't feature. Why? You, what are you saying? You know, are you stereotyping anyway? Um, uh, you know, so but I don't have anything to say about the movie now. It's too long, and I, I spent too much time on it. And when you spend too much time on something, you kind of forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it was it was before Star Wars. It was when science fiction movies were all were either they were complete tosh, or they were very intellectual. And there wasn't this sort of big produced tentpole movie kind of science fiction movie at all. They were either going to be bargain basement, you know, cheap thrills, or they were going to be, they thought philosophical. So it was going to be silent running or things like that and you know the man of to earth was one of those mm-hmm. the the aliens and their quest for water were entirely the, the alien sequences I didn't like I didn't think her looked alien enough I didn't think he looked alien enough for Candy Clark to scream so much when he came out with what slightly different eyes he had cat's eyes he had cat's eyes you wouldn't scream you'd say ah uh, wow are, are those contact lenses are those your real eyes? Are your eyes really like that? Oh, you want to leave the contact lenses out? Those are beautiful. You should keep those all. You wouldn't piss yourself. And she literally did. Um, the 
thing in the movie I didn't like, and I thought there were things that were too long, but there was stuff in it that was absolutely do you feel it's lacking? A yeah, I'm anything. Do you feel it's lacking a sort of Bond theme tune, where yeah. someone? No, I'm so glad it lacks the Bond theme well, tune. Well, you say that, but John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas, who did the mm -hmm. music for yeah. the movie, much of which, particularly the jazz stuff, is very good. <laughs> John Phillips is unsung. And this was after the Mamas and Papas. I hate it. Turn it off, please. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like somebody trying to do a David Bowie theme who's not David Bowie. The man who fell to earth, maybe he'll change your mind like he changed mine. Mm, poor John Phillips. That's another. That's a, that's a very sad story because Mamas and Papas, of course, huge and wonderful and wrote some great... Mama Cass, wow. What a great voice. But he was this guy who could pull anyone into the group and he would turn them into a singer. He knew how to speedily turn anyone into a singer. So when, never mind, it's a long story, we're talking about David Bowie. Um, but it's interesting because the absence of Bowie musically in the movie, I think, is one of the things that makes the film interesting. No, it's one of the things Bowie's that makes Bowie. the film. And I think it makes it, it's, it makes the film itself if they'd put David Bowie music in it, I'm sorry, it would have been read as a jukebox movie. And it wasn't. It was actually taken, when it came out, extremely seriously. Bowie wasn't an experienced actor. I'm not sure he gives a great performance, but he didn't have to. Mm. He, was, mm -hmm. he, he just could be that part extremely well. And it was, um, it, it's a very successful movie, I think. But I'm so glad it doesn't have his music in it, it wouldn't have been right unless you know he'd written some song we cannot imagine that's perfect for. It. I mean, after all, he wrote Absolute Beginners, which is the best thing about Absolute Beginners. Oh, by a very wide margin, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so but I think the shame the thing I've learned looking at David Bowie and it's something we have to hold on to is that some of his very best work was done when he was utterly unfashionable wasn't surfing the zeitgeist. <coughs> so he doesn't have that push that a cultural weight gives someone. It, artists surf the zeitgeist, and the zeitgeist left Bowie in a terrible way. And I remember seeing him and thinking, oh God, who would have believed that guy was so powerful? Yeah, I, 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 I just I remember when Boot of Suburbia came out. I thought, who in their right mind is going to buy a David Bowie soundtrack to a TV show? Um, the case for David Bowie as a missing jazz person is pretty much made by that album. And, and also, uh, oh God, my mind, I wish I'd done I was going to talk about David Bowie. A uh, Heathen, and then yeah. the one after it which is more variable, but has Bring Me the Head of the Disco King, which is probably Bowie's best vocal performance. Just absolutely superb vocal performance, a wonderful track. Um, and people who say, well, you know, he fell off. Uh-uh, all his albums had three or f two or three indispensable tracks and a lot of dross. They all did, even, even Heroes, which I think is probably 
I don't think it's the greatest song ever written because if you hear anyone else sing it, it always falls flat. I mean, no one else can perform it. But his performance of Heroes, it's certainly, you know, I have two or three musical moments that are right at the top. Like I said, Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles, Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles, um, uh, Mr. Jones by Bob, uh, Bob Dylan, I can't remember the name of the track now, uh, and Heroes, which is just hair-raising. It's just, you know, an irreplaceable track. But a lot of the stuff on Heroes, um, on side one, um, so, um, God, don't touch your piece. You can't say it. Beauty and the Beast is a great track, and Heroes is a great track, but everything else on side one is a little bit sort of noisy, clattering, interesting production doesn't really work and then the side two is all the more ambient stuff which is beautiful but how when was the last time you played it well I mean to, to try and reduce a very complex and interesting artist to an oversimplified statement something that he was very good at and also made money from was he seemed very good at taking quite avant-garde things and then listening to them and identifying the things that were quite poppy so he was able to produce things that were genuinely very experimental and left field, but also would you could dance to, mm -hmm. and you could hum bits of them, which is not that usual actually amongst pop stars. John Lennon, someone else who did have that ability. Well, yeah, I mean, can you imagine being sixteen years old? It's the tail end of nineteen sixty-seven. Okay, revolvers come out. But it was still basically, although they sometimes played backwards and made to sound more angular and sharp, like a needle in your ear, Revolver had come out. And it was uniformly brilliant and is the Beatles' best LP. <coughs> right at the end of 1966, they were starting to work on Sgt. Pepper's. It, an, art, an act of artistic vandalism, Capitol Records said, we need a single, we just need a single. So they took Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane off Sgt. Pepper's to make it a single. If those two records had been on Sgt. Pepper's, mm. which they would have been now, and if I Am the Walrus had been on Sgt. Pepper's, we would have been looking at another totally great album. As it stands, Sgt. Pepper's, I think, is kind of drecky. Kind of a period piece, really, isn't it? It's just drecky. Mm. It's got a day in the life, and actually, that's about it. I quite like fixing a hole, but not a lot. Losing the Sky with Diamonds starts out beautifully, but then goes thump, bump, bump. We don't know how to change gears. Oh, we'll just do this shit. And a lot of it is, I mean, and the ending of Henry the Horse Dances the Walls is magnificent, but Beatles had nothing to do with that. That was George Martin cutting up hundreds of hours of calliope tapes and making something off them. I mean, it's pretty drecky. Uh, but if you'd taken um, what was on, you know, Maybe Fool on the Hill, I Am the Walrus, uh, you know, got rid of some of the dreck, put on, and then organized it so the Liverpudlian stuff had room to breathe. Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. John Lennon singing in the character of an eight-year-old female orphan outside the gates of an orphanage. It, it's impossible to recreate when that record came out January of 67 even having been preceded by Tomorrow Never Knows with uh, Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine on it 
it's impossible to recreate the you you almost couldn't breathe when strawberry fields forever came on there had i mean there'd never been a pop record like it there never been a piece of music on popular radio like it and you, you couldn't breathe and we said like more and she say, yes dear what listen she went um uh, yet yeah, what? You know, there wasn't any response. That was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Anyway, so to get back to Mr. Bowie, mm. um, yes, it's a lesson to us all that through that long period of albums, which I just thought, oh, Jesus, David Bowie, you know, how did he lose it so completely? It's a lesson in what happens when the world loses its eye. Mm. and gets another eye and he just couldn't see David Bowie so I'm going through all these albums and finding I just didn't buy them all and and you know okay uh, one album only has Loving the Alien on it and nothing else that's a pretty good track and you, you suddenly so people suddenly said oh my god you know this heartrending final LP was so brilliant uh -uh. the next day the next day, which is the album before it, which is his comeback LP, is possibly his best. It's 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 really quite remarkable, and all the records before that, the the work he did with Sue Schneider, it's only two tracks. Uh, but um, oh, come on, what are the names? Sue. Season a season of crime, I think. Mm. That's genuine jazz, and it's just utterly like incredible brilliant and the so the albums before that were all good he was he was good he was still good but we couldn't hear it i don't know what we were waiting for i don't know why we couldn't hear it but we couldn't and so i get slightly annoyed with people who act as if his you know death lp is sort of like you know the great one when he came back nah that's a, that's a story but you know he, he Heathen is slightly too smoothly produced, but mm. you know, the, was it Visconti was a, a middle-aged man too. But the songwriting is just phenomenal on that album. So, I mean, he, he, he was still providing us with good music, even if we didn't always accept it, and people got quite unkind. There was a, remember a review of, I don't think it was Let's Dance, I think it was Tonight's the Night, the one that came after. They just said with the you know David Bowie has never been a musical innovator, mm. and that was hostile and genuinely aggressively unkind. Another you could say and just be merely hostile. David Bowie's fallen off, and this is boring mm. stuff. To say he'd never been an innovator, he had some challenges. He also was phenomenally successful, and he certainly got us through most of the 70s until punk because there was jolly little happening there was t-rex and t-rexacy was very brief uh it sounds better now strangely but at the time that this music isn't actually all that good it's it's fun but it's not all that good and he sort of went off and very quickly and didn't even look sexy anymore 
And then very suddenly, you will, I remember, right at the end of 73, I was in some kind of amusement park, I don't know why, with university students. And the young kids were all singing Puppy Love by the Osmonds. And we went all, oh Jesus, you know, as if these were squares and everyone would agree with us. And no, Lady Shama, it's the greatest record ever. You bunch of hippies. Uh, oh, I know what that sound is. Crap as the Osmonds are, that's, that's a new generation. That's something different. The person got us through. It's a bit like the Smiths under Thatcher. They got us through. You know, the music was great and it was good. You got us through that period. There wasn't much else to get, get you through. There really wasn't. As he said, the only the only thing that's left now is this plastic soul. I'm, I'm afraid he was right. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. Next time on Music for Films. In the hidden corners of the city where the rebel set stokes the fires of its rebellion against respectable society. Hey, you. Take a place, daddy You and your phony beatnik friends. I said take a place. Live the most wonderful experience of your life. Place to Jig, the emergency engineer wishes you to go to Park Station where a broken rail has been found. VIPs too. Not just here to tiddly up the place. This is fire prevention work. If all this dust, paper and fluff was allowed to pile up, you'd only need one spark and woof. And apart from scaring the customers, that wouldn't do the cables much good neither. Central is two and sixpence from Golders Green on the Northern Line. And on the platform by the kiosk, that's where you said you'd be mine.
Wouldn't it be fun to have a friend who was invisible to everyone except you? And supposing he was a pirate? 